0: You know, you can go out there and fly formation, and you could do spins, and you can do landing practice and toes, and you know, and if you're, you can even continue your flight training with an instructor.
1: Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid Atlantic region here in the United States, and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode fifty-eight. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public friday saturday sunday and monday to learn how you can get involved check them out on instagram and facebook at soaring academy or online at soCalsoaringacademy.org. today on the podcast daniel Sazen joins us he has over 11 years of flying experience and has logged over 1600 hours in the air daniel holds several soaring badges as well as many u.s and world soaring records Daniel is a big supporter and contributor to Soaring and Soaring Simulators. He is currently the contest director for U.S. Nightly Soaring and has been since 2011. Daniel will share with us today how we can fly with our friends while still practicing social distancing. He will also share with us his soaring adventures. Before we get to our guest, though, a big thank you to our Patreon Pilot of the Month, Mitch from California. Thanks, Mitch, for your continued support. We greatly appreciate it. If you like what we are doing and you'd like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky. Daniel Stazen, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you today. Glad to be here. I was, you know, sitting around like some of us, a lot of us actually right now, sitting around the house and trying to think of some things we could do as soaring pilots that Obviously, we can't do in many of the clubs right now because we're not flying. And I contacted uh, one of my friends, Scott, and then Scott referred me to talk to you because you are the simulator soaring guy from what I hear. So want to introduce you and tell me a little bit about your flying and how you got into soaring. But, of course, then talk about the simulator and maybe some things we could be doing right now while we're at home.
0: Fantastic. You know, at this point, with the world going yeah, very much online into the virtual sphere because of all the social distancing and, uh, and working from home stuff, you know, it sort of uh, pays to think about how we could move soaring into the virtual world. And uh, Condor is a wonderful way to do it, uh, you know, for the time being. And Condor has been around for a while, since about 2005, and it's an outstanding uh, simulator. It's very realistic, and it's a very powerful training uh tool and it's uh, it's and it's really fun because you can go out there and you know join online and go and race with your buddies and that's what it was designed to do you know and we've had they they do uh, races you know pretty serious races where you can have like you know 60 people on a server and that's kind of a big deal for some folks but then you could also just get together and have 15 you know 15 guys from your from your club all just get on the Condor and go fly together you know uh, in an unstructured way so it's uh it looks like a really good opportunity for folks to that are basically stuck at home and you know kind of uh down with uh everything that's going on to be able to get some so do some fun stuff and do some training and you know and kind of ride out this little storm we have
1: so if i'm sitting at home and i, and I have condor already but i haven't flown with any of my buddies because i really don't know how to hook that up what is the easiest way I can go fly with my friends.
0: Sure. So there are – so the very first thing I can say is there already are servers on the Condor website. So if you go to condorsoring.com and you go to – I believe it's multiplayer. I'm bringing it up now to take a look to check. Yeah, and then you go to version 2. Which is kind of the, the standard version nowadays, even though they still support version one. Um, and there, you know, you can go and pick a server in Slovenia because that's the default landscape. And oftentimes there's a free flight server, which you know will you can basically go on there at any time, um, and you just log in there with your friends, and you can do that in, on a whim. Uh, and the other things you can do is if you don't want to, if you want to be able to go and do something more specific like for instance if you have a um if let's say your area has a landscape so if you find a club that uh, has um, a scenery in uh in your area and you want to fly in that particular place well you can go and set up a task in the flight planner save the flight plan and then host the server and then you can get a couple of your buddies to go and fly at your home airport even though uh at least in the virtual world that is
1: yeah so you could virtually jump in the cockpit and Be flying with your friends in a gaggle, riding a thermal out, do some ridge soaring alongside them. It's pretty cool stuff, it sounds like you can do.
0: Absolutely. You know, you can pretty much do all the things you would do in reality, you know, and you can race, you can fly together. I mean, and there's all sorts of things you can do that are just, you know, just. you know, just for fun, you know, you can go out there and fly formation and you can do spins and you can do landing practice and toes and, you know, and if you're, you could even continue your flight training with an instructor, to a degree at least, and, you know, work on certain concepts and things like that. I mean, it uh, it, it does a very, very good job of representing, you know, what flying is like. Not a hundred percent, obviously. You know, you're you have to take certain things with a little bit of a grain of salt. But uh, but if you approach it well, you know, then you can get a lot out of it. And from from the perspective of how good the simulator is, I, th- I have about there. I mean, I, I at about two thousand hours, I stopped counting. So I've flown it quite a bit. Oh wow. Uh, Well, since I've been flying it since 2005, you know, so I spent and I did a lot of my flight training and cross country training in tandem with a lot of the, you know, a lot of counter flying. And, and this and for the first version, and the second version is a bit more sophisticated. The first version, it took about a 1000 hours of pretty extensive flying to the point where, you know, you could, you know, you, you start kind of figuring out how the simulator works and, you know, what's driving the weather model and stuff. But, up until that point, you pretty much approach it the same way as you would approach the sky, from a at least from a decision making perspective, because the 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 complexity of the weather model is pretty substantial and you know it takes a long time to figure out how to, how it works. Um and the version two is even even more sophisticated and I, I have you know, I've I haven't flown that one quite as much, but it's still um, I don't look at the sky thinking about what Condor is gonna do. It's you know, I just look at it the way I would look at a normal sky.
1: Yeah, you know, I found it pretty amazing. You can actually, well, you can practice all kinds of things. But talking about the weather, you can even practice like your crosswind landings for the students. I think that'd be really helpful.
0: Oh yeah, no, I mean you're like one of the things I've noticed flying uh, with some of the folks uh, in in some you know in some people my club and other and others is that you know that. Like landing on pavement, you know, and really landing in a straight line, you know, is tends to be something that is uh, a bit challenging for folks uh, that terrified big airports with big grassy areas and such. And but like in Condor, we all very often fly off of paved runways or land on them, and you know, you you basically every landing you do, you land on, you know, you try to land straight line on the on center line, and it becomes second nature. And it's like, and you kind of wonder why is it so hard for folks, you know? But well. You know, if you're if you don't if you're not used to it and if you haven't done it in the simulator, well, then you don't have any experience with it. But the Condor experience does translate in reality very well.
1: Well, it sounds like you know a lot of these clubs could get some stuff going. If I'm sure some have already, but while we're all you know sitting around and have a lot of time, definitely get some stuff going with our club members and maybe even some other clubs joining other clubs and having some races.
0: There, there's a number of things you can already do. And there's things that are already being set up as we speak. So for one, for instance, I'm setting up a server for Aero Club Albatross uh, at Wednesday at 7 p.m., at least for now. Um, And I put the details on my blog on The Soaring Economist. Um, And so, you know, it's not password protected or anything like that. Uh, uh, You know, certainly anyone can come to that and come and join us and fly at Blairstown at Wednesday at 7 o'clock. If other clubs want to set up a similar sort of thing... I'd be more than happy to help them. They can email me at, at gmail.com or contact me through my blog, and I'd be happy to guide them through the process as to how they can set up a server and things like that. Um, also, uh, there are basically already existing competitions that are run. Uh, and by competitions, I want to emphasize that's kind of low-key. So you you can show up and just fly around on the server and. People would be more than happy for you to be there. You know, you're not expected to. You know, you, they're, they're, you're, there's no there's no real strong structure to it. But you know, the races are such that you can go out there and start the task, and you're racing with all these people, and and uh, and people are trying to perform well, and it's it's fun to try to win and stuff like that. And I've supported uh, two contests for a long time, so I've been running U.S. Nightly Soaring, which goes six days a week from. Uh, Tuesday through Sunday, and that's at nine o'clock Eastern. The tasks are about an hour, hour and twenty minutes in length, thereabouts. Um, and then there's also Monday night soaring, which was around since 2005, and you know lots of folks have uh, went and flown it over the years. And that is that has two servers at seven o'clock and ten o'clock, and the tasks are about two hours in length thereabouts. Uh, more and they tend to be a bit more, you know, realistic, more heavy duty, you know, things that where you're going to be working a bit harder. And basically, there's a, a community that's been doing that, you know, routinely for the past 15 years. And people are more than welcome to join on and, and participate in that. And the and the racing is, you know, pretty much it's almost as fun as real life.
1: And it is in real time, which I found was pretty cool. So when you know when you're on tow and it, it takes you just as long as it normally would. So that's the same with the races. That's and I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. They're and um, the, you know, you're, you could see other gliders, you can see what they're doing. You could see them thermaling, you join the thermals and you try to, you know, you could see if they're doing better or worse than you You could see which line they're taking. And if that's better or worse, I mean, it's just the same sort of deal. And, and also when it comes to, you know, like the things you could do, the other thing is uh, people can save their flight logs. And if you go and for instance, or um, Flying with it, if you want to use a log as a reference for someone else, they they can it, the the simulator saves the weather and the log, and you can actually race against either yourself actually or other people that have saved their log, and you can do it after the fact. So, if for, for instance in your club, you know uh, a uh, more experienced pilot goes and or at least with Condor – and sets up and re- runs around a task, and you do it and. Uh, and you didn't do so well, and you really want to learn how they did it and un- understand every decision that they've made, right? Well, you can actually run through. You can set up their log and fly with them and fly against them until until you figure it out. And I've done that with uh, with some of our club members, where they would race against my ghost, as they call it in Condor, for like 20 times until they kind of really figured out what was going on and how to, how to fly it well. And when it comes to learning, you know, that even on a more basic level, you know, you can get an instructor or a coach, and thing, and you can work on very specific skills. And Condor is really, really, really good at teaching concepts, teaching ideas. It, it, when it comes to kind of the very precise feel uh, and the control harmonization of to how do you you're going to fly the glider, um, it does a pretty good job. Uh, but if for very basic students. Especially for flying something like a T-33, which is somewhat different from Blanik and a K-21 and a Duo Discus, which what Condor has, then th- there's a there's a little bit of a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, but when it comes to teaching the ideas of even things like you know pitch control and yaw and rudder and or you know like how how you approach a traffic pattern and how you do the boxing the wake and what are stalls what are spins all these kinds of things, you can go and get people to really truly completely understand what is going on and then uh when it doesn't exactly and when they don't you hit pause or you do it again and then you you know you then you, you talk through it and then you do it again and again and again for free basically until they get it and then when you start introducing it to reality let's say in three or four months when this whole passes all they're working on is Going and dealing with the mechanics of how to do it with, in a real glider under real circumstances, but they completely understand what they're doing because. That, and I think back to my own training, where um, a lot of like you know when you're on tow and you're trying to box the wake, and it's pretty intimidating. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot going on. Um, but here in Condor, you can really piece apart every little thing about the the training experience and work on that particular thing and you can do it until the person gets it and uh and that works great for every stage of learning but then you take it one step further and you start talking about like the more advanced stuff like thermaling or ridge flying or mccready theory or you start talking about you know the more specific optimization like how you know how much should you deviate under what kind of conditions how much water ballast you should have all these kinds of things they require a lot of practice a lot of repetition in order to really understand Uh, and it could take years and years of a lot of flying in order to get pretty good at that stuff but condor in some respects actually does it better when it comes to training that sort of thing because you can go and you can really play with all of the different variables and you can isolate those particular things and to, And see what happens when you try different McCready settings, for instance, and how that plays into your performance. And so then, when you go into reality, when you go into the real flying season, then you you know you got the concepts down one hundred percent and then you just have to make adjustments for the added levels of complexity that there are in reality. So it is a, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful training tool. I couldn't you know, I think that it will be fantastic if more and more instructors and coaches and club members were to use it.
1: Yeah, and especially right now it's it's very cool that students can still keep their training going, you know, if, I'm sure a lot of them already know that, but yeah, they can use this time wisely and so when they do get back at the glider port they're ready to go.
0: That that's another aspect. Well, there's there's two thoughts that come to mind there. The first is that uh, as a you know, given all of the people that have been preparing for the flying season, you know, that Ha, uh, there there's kind of a big letdown with all the stuff that's going on now, and this gives them an alternative. It gives them an out. It gives them something to do for the next couple months and stay engaged, and I think that's really important for a club. It's very important to keep people focused and enthusiastic, and this is a good way to do it. But the second thing, uh, uh, kind of also building on the usefulness of it as a training tool, is that you're you you can, to a certain extent, devote... Nearly endless hours toward working on particular things in the Condor. Like In reality, let's face it, you know, you're you go out there and you take a tow and that's costly, you know, it costs time and money. And and if nothing else, I mean, you have limited club, club resources, right? You have limited club instructors. But in the in Condor. What you can do is you can go and work on something at a leisurely time, at a leisurely pace, and then you go and you actually can give homework, right? You can tell the guy, well, okay, now go and do what we just did and do it a hundred times, <laughs> like go and practice, yeah. go, go do it, do fifty takeoffs and landings, and then I'll, and we'll come back in three days, you know. And yet in reality, you know, when we typically work on a particular thing, right? You're going to go out there and you're going to do it a couple times, five times, ten times, and maybe that's enough. But in Condor you could do it you know there's essentially no limit to how much practice you can do until you totally get something if people buy into it if they kind of if they take the effort to understand it and use it then it, it is unbelievably powerful as a training tool
1: absolutely i do have to ask i mean i we kind of got into the condor thing which was kind of what i wanted to focus this podcast on but of course you know i have to ask you when did your aviation journey begin, and how did you get into it? I mean, how did you end up where you are right now?
0: Well, so for for some reference, I mean, I think most of the folks that are listen to your podcast, they probably have heard about me, or know me, or maybe even met me. But I'm uh, 25 years old. I'm a, I'm a junior pilot, I've, and you know, and I've sort of made more of a name of myself for. By going and flying the Junior Worlds and things like that over the past couple of years, and uh, and really enjoying flying the ridges and things like that, and making some very nice ridge flights, and, and a 126 and an LS4 and and a Duck Hawk and things like that. But uh, I've been around flying uh, pretty much since uh, 2005, and that was because my my older brother and I, you know, they got we got gift certificates to go uh, try out gliding at Blairstown, New Jersey. And my brother got hooked and went, did the the whole, you know, did basically got a glider rating, got a commercial glider rating, and went on, went on the airplane route. But while he was flying gliders, I went and I was basically tagging along as a 11-year-old and hanging around the airport and, you know, just kind of spending my weekends there. And um, And at the same time, actually, you know, that's when I got my hands on Condor. And so while I was going and sort of hanging around the airport for a couple of years, I spent the vast majority of my flying in the simulator. And so that's what kind of kept me enthusiastic and hooked. And honestly, what do you mean? Once I soloed. I mean, I was flying, cro- flying cross-country in the simulator for years at that point. So, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was raring to go and get my silver badge and go and take a 126 and do things with it, you know, because I, I knew what cross-country was all about, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so, basically, once I got my flying skills uh, up to the standard where I was able to do it in reality, that is, um, I mean, I was off to the races, and, and you know, and a huge part of you know a lot of my advancement you know aside from being you know uh, enthusiastic bordering on obsessed with the sport uh, for many years is that basically once I got good enough to do it in reality I was I had all that flying the soaring ex- experience in condor behind me and so I went from having a silver badge to having two diamonds on the ridge in a 126 in 7 months And, which was probably not necessarily, in retrospect, probably wasn't all that good of an idea, you know, it's, I kind of took it, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was flying with my hair on fire, you know, but... Um, but then, then I went to my first competition, and you know, I was, I was winning days with uh, with Ron Schwartz and the 126 Championships, and and I mean, I didn't even expect that. I mean, I sort of, I didn't really expect that Condor to generalize as well, and that I was able to tap into that experience as quickly as I, you know, and as effectively as I, as I did when I was going through those stages. And by and also for that matter, I don't recommend that, you know, to to folks to necessarily you know, fly with their hair on fire, you know, as I said, uh, you know, they're you get, you know, you go and you back off a step or two and then you can have as much of the fun and, uh, you know, without as much of the excitement, if you know what I mean. You know, but basically, you know, a lot of like pretty much everything that I've done, you know, has to at least a degree or another that, you know, has a Condor in, uh, in the background because, you know, when I was a hundred hour pilot, I was a hundred hour pilot with I don't know five six hundred hours of counter experience with me, and and that you know, and and while that does not universally apply to everything, and I understood that at the time, uh, but there were instant you know that, but at the same time, I was still um, able to tap into that very often, and that's a lot of the reason why I was able to progress as quickly as I did.
1: Wow, that's that's impressive, and that just just shows you what it can do for students and yeah. for people that are already flying that maybe you know didn't start out with. A flight simulator
0: and and also like a lot of the for me the aside from the training value i mean the a lot at the time it also it just kept me engaged you know like and my soaring experience was not limited to coming out on a weekend you know and Kind of hanging around him for a while, and then getting a 20-minute flight with a distracted instructor. Um, not to say that was my experience at all. That my experience with my instructor was fantastic. You know, I got a, you know, it, I was I got a heck of a one-on-one education with him. He was great, Bob Cook. But uh, but that's you know, but the experience I just discussed is very often what a lot of people how they go about their their flying. For me, you know, I was going back home and I was flying the simulator, you know, all around the world in all sorts of different conditions, trying out all sorts of different things. And and the thing is, in Condor, you can do whatever you want. You know, you can go out there and uh, you can really you can try out certain things and uh, and, and see what's going to happen, you know, and like. Like one of the things that I did to entertain myself a couple weeks ago, I mean, I saw that they had put up these two buildings that were kind of 20 feet apart from each other and was like, I don't know, 100 feet high. And I looked at that and I was like, man, you know, I think you could probably do a knife edge through those two buildings, between those two buildings, you know, and it's like, and you go out there and you spend 100 times figuring out how you would do it. I mean... Is not going to help me in reality, no. But it was for sure fun, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, like, right. <laughs> I mean, and it's just—it was just really was immensely entertaining, you know. And like, you know, and you could go out there and you—you could do little passes and spins and loops and all these kinds of things. And uh, you could try to go and land a glider in the middle of a town and all these. I you, you know, and like, and it's just fun to do. I mean, it's just fun to see what you can figure out. I mean, like, you can go out there and do it like land on a big slope and then like, and then ground loop and do a touch and go and take off again. I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's just, you know, just horsing around, you know, but when you're a 15 year old, I mean, it's still fun to do, you know, (laughs) But it's it's just, you know, JP and I, I don't know if you ever heard of him, JP Stewart. He was my teammate at the junior worlds. I mean, you know, we've probably over the, you know, aside from the contest we've been to, we, we, you know, we, 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 we met in Condor really. And, uh, and that's where we got to know each other and we you know we've talked a lot and we flew a lot in the simulator and stuff like that but you know and we would fly the tasks and then we go and mess around in the simulator you know and it was fun and and that that kind of stuff i mean i can't overstate you know like just how you know how how much fun it is to do this with the people that you know and uh you know and you can you could do the real life stuff and you could also there's also certain things you could do in the simulator that you can only do in the simulator you know and for that matter also the another kind of aspect of that is well, one of the one of the things that I've found in the simulator you know there's certain things you'll do and you, when you'll kind of figure out what the edges of the margins are and things like that and you'll say man you know that's something that I would only do in the simulator right because I would never do anything like that in reality because I know how marginal that is and but uh, you know in the simulator you, you can you can fly to that fly that way but then it, but then it turns out as the years go on I realize that pretty much everything that I said that man you know I've that, you know, like, that's what you could do in the simulator, but then, you know, I would back off 500 to 1,000 feet in reality because you could see how marginal that is. Well, you've I've seen people in reality do that stuff. I, everything that I've ever seen happen in the simulator, someone has done reality at some point, and that's scary. That um, is scary. <laughs> you know, and so it's actually one of those things. I mean, there, there's a lot of discuss, there was some discussion of, about some folks where they would, you know, they say that, you know, that people – stop being able to distinguish you know what reality and condor is and and margins and things like that well it actually goes the other way too you know it's uh you know where you know when you you can practice and figure out certain things in the simulator and understand them and you can really you could do something a hundred times and see what's going to fail five times out of a hundred right and and then understand that you don't want you shouldn't be doing that and it's kind of one of those interesting kinds of things you know and um so it, you're, uh, you know, but when it comes to margins and safety and risk and things like that, what you end up doing is, you know, you're the, the kind of the smart thing to do is to say, okay, you know, I'm flying and you're flying in the simulator, and then you say you get to a, a certain fork in the road where you say, okay, well, I am going to, at this point, I would do make a certain kind of decision. I would land in a field. I would go off to the airport. I wouldn't go cross country. I don't, I don't, whatever decision you feel is appropriate. And then you can you can consciously, deliberately say at this point, at this fork in the road, I am going to persist because I want to see what's going to happen. I want to understand, you know, what would happen if I can consi- continue with this decision. And I actually found that going through that mental exercise is tremendously valuable because uh, you end up very clearly understanding those forks in the road. And then in reality, when you get to that fork in the road, um, It it becomes even more blatantly obvious that you should not persist with it, you know, and it gets you thinking hard and it actually improves your situational awareness and understanding where you are approaching a safety decision. Yeah, I mean, the Condor goes well beyond teaching the basics, but you can actually really start getting into the more, you know, higher order decision making stuff, even on a safety level, too.
1: Just off topic a little bit, what were you flying in the worlds?
0: Sure. Well, I've, uh, I've flown in three junior worlds. And in all three of them, I was in club class. Um, and, and in all three of them, I was flying in club class with two other pilots. They were my teammates. And in the last one, I, we also had a fourth member, Mike Marshall, and he flew in standard class. But we were the different classes. They don't interact too much. Um, but in, in um, all three of the junior worlds that I attended, um, all myself and my teammates all flew the same glider because we wanted to fly together. In Australia, I flew a standard Cirrus. In Lithuania, uh, we flew standard Yantars. They were the first version, and in the last one, we flew LS4s.
1: Which out of all those that you flew, which one is there? Any of them that you prefer or like maybe better than the other one because of its benefits
0: in terms of a glider?
1: Yeah, in terms of its of a glider and its performance, are they all pretty close? Or
0: um, well, you know, you have to bear in mind that each of these events is a handicapped event, right? So. Uh, the the decision of the glider had to do with kind of optimizing it for you know the rules and the and the the conditions that we expected right so um, so that it, there, there's some adjustments there right I very much enjoyed flying the standard Cirrus in Australia um, I found it to be a really really nice glider performed better than I expected actually it had a, it had a remarkably good high speed polar. And which worked out pretty, very nicely, you know, for Australian conditions, much to my surprise, you know, even with that big, really big fat wing, uh, I could say distinctly that the standard Yantar, uh, not a fan, <laughs> you know, uh, at least the first one, I got to fly the second one on a practice day, uh, and that was a much, much superior glider, um, but the, the the standard Yantar uh, was a real uh you know god it was a real dog i mean it was kind of like flying a a grobe but a, as a single seater and you know and by the end of the competition i mean my arms and my legs were you know hurting you know because it was so just sore from flying the damn thing um, it performed great though i mean man i mean the thing runs like stink you know and so when well, on the straightaways it was really fun uh but in the turns it, it wasn't so fun because you'd end up you know if you really wanted to climb you'd have to really slow it down and uh and and you know my basically my teammates and I, I mean we were able to thermal them pretty successfully but in order to get them to climb with the gaggle uh you had to really slow it down and at that point i mean you just couldn't control the thing i mean you're like the ailerons i mean they hardly had hardly any effectiveness and so you know when you're in a busy gaggle that's just not fun but the know. and so that was the Antar. But you know, I mean, it was a nice ship and it was a good choice uh, given the circumstances. And you know, and and uh, we we got everything out of the glider as far as I was concerned. So uh, it certainly didn't it didn't limit our performance. Um, so there were there were there were reasons why we chose that glider, and then you know, and it, it worked out. But nonetheless, I I would prefer not to fly it again. The LS4, I mean, my club has an LS4, so I have a lot of experience in an LS4, and it's just a fantastic glider. I mean, it just Climbs great, runs great. It's just it's so benign. There's a million good characteristics about it, you know. And uh, we we had a great time flying those ships. But um, of, of the three, I mean, the the standard Cirrus, uh, given the circumstances, of course. I mean, the rules have changed somewhat. The handicaps have changed, so this one wouldn't, wouldn't apply anymore. But I, I felt I really really dialed into that glider when I was out there. And the first of the three uh, worlds worked out pro- probably the best for the team. And I kind of, um, you know, I kind of lament the fact that I, I was such a rookie at that point, because man, if we had a chance to go to narrow mine, Australia on the third one, that would have been so awesome, you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> um, Cause then I think we could have done even better. Um, all three were just spectacular experiences. I mean, and, and, and if you have young folks listening to the, the podcast, I mean, I got to tell you, you know, going to the, the juniors is just about the most spectacular soaring experience you can have. I mean, you got, all these young folks, you know, up to 25, you know, you're, when you're, and, and the thing is a lot of young folks you're, you're, you the, the, a lot of the, 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 sport is aging. So you just don't get to interact with a lot, a lot of other young people, you know, and, and here you go and you show up to a contest where everyone is pretty damn good and they're out there and they're, and, and they have such a good attitude about it. I mean, you know, they, everyone's just so excited to be there and be in this wonderful group. And so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, if, if you're thinking about soaring, if you're interested in the soaring, I mean, go out there and, you know, get your badges, go out to a, you know, and just get out to some nationals and fly and, and if you perform reasonably, you know, I mean, you're, you have a really good chance of being on the team, you know, because the nice thing is your competition is going to age out, <laughs> you know. So at a given time, there's actually not that many people that can qualify. And a lot of the, a lot of the effort is, is simply is getting basically good enough to be able to find a nationals and perform reasonably consistently, you know. And and at that point uh, and going to a juniors, I mean, they the U.S. team sponsors it completely. You you don't have to pay a dime to go to those uh, events. and and the the team is fully supported, um, and the and the team really takes it seriously and wants you know the team to do well. and um, and so it's just a fantastic experience. I mean, I'm so incredibly grateful that people gave me the chance to do it, and people have supported me through it. Um, on on so many different levels. I mean, through my club and uh, through all the contests that I've been to, and the, and the rebate program and things like that. I mean, I I I, got, I was in a in a very fortuitous time because uh, you know all the things that I've gone to do and the things I'm doing, you know, are pretty very much due to all the support that the US, you know, that the US team, the SSA and my club have, have provided. And so, and and all that, I mean, the, the, you know, the support structure is getting better and better. And so if you're, if you're a young person, or you know, people who might be into that sort of thing, you know, get them into that, because it's just, it is just a spectacular experience.
1: Do you think that the gliding world is coming back around? I mean, a lot of people think that it's already had its golden era and it's kind of in the past, and we're not Anywhere near where we used to be with gliders. Do you think it's coming back? And if so, what do you think we are doing or what we can do to bring it back?
0: Yeah, well... I'd slightly, you know, there, there, there's a couple ways to look at that, right? If you look at the straight up statistics, right? If you look at the overall trends, then they're not, you know, they're not particularly, uh, they're not particularly good, right? For a lot of the gliding, you know, the gliding organizations, and that's that's understandable uh, because you know people are aging out and all this sort of thing, right? But here's the important caveat: it is that if you, the the thing to think about or the thing to realize is the measure, the threshold of success. Right. The threshold of success to uh, to to aspire to is not all that high. Right. So you go like, for instance, you go to a nationals around now nowadays and you have 20 gliders and that's disappointing. And so in your, you know, let's say a number of years ago, it was 35. And, and every year it's been decreasing by one or two. And, you know, they say the trend is bad. But the thing is, in order to make the nationals go and become healthy and vibrant and successful, you get 30 gliders there and you'll have a, it's a very different competition. I mean, certainly okay, it'll be very nice to get 60, hundred, 200, whatever, you know, and multiple different contests and all that sort of thing. But you know, if you go on a path toward growth and you go and you get another 10 gliders to attend that wouldn't, wouldn't have otherwise have been there. Now you have a very successful and healthy event. If a club goes from 80 members and instead of atrophying and stagnating and slowly withering away, and it gains instead, of, you know, it gains a couple members a year. Now, bearing in mind there's churn and all this sort of thing, right? But if you manage to just grow slowly every year, then you know you go to a, you become a hundred member club, and all of a sudden you have all sorts of opportunities, and and you're very healthy, and you know, and there's a lot of new new and new people and new things happening, and all this kind of stuff. And but the thing is, is you've gained 20 people, right? It's not you know like it really doesn't take that much to turn things around at least in a narrow sense in a, in a, in a given organization. And so at least from my vantage point, I mean, I'm involved heavily in my club in my area, uh, and the, you know, neighboring clubs and such. And, you know, that's pretty much the story of air club abatross right. And, you know, we went from about 80 members to approaching hundred, a lot more people are full flying members. Now we have, we went from six gliders that were, you know, most of them that were not, not in all, that, all that good shape that were, uh, in lower performing. And now we have s- gliders that are much better shape and you know more restored and we have some high performance gliders and we have our tow plane and clubhouse and all this shop and all this kind of stuff and a lot more new people right and a lot of it just took some persistent effort both on on my part and a lot due to the a lot of really a lot of enthusiasm in the club to try to see it prosper and you know and the club is actually doing pretty well uh and i see the same kind of story in a lot of other clubs that um you know that I've been somewhat either to one degree or other affiliated with or know people there. I mean, like you look at Harris Hill, you look at PGC nowadays and Valley Soaring. You look at you know SCO, uh, you know Soaring Club of Houston, in TSA and such, and they're doing pretty well. And uniformly, you know those those clubs. I mean, they're they're oriented toward uh, retaining their membership, toward attracting new people, um, and getting the and and getting people involved in the soaring program one way or another and if you get people through their silver badge and by the way this is not to say i mean people who want to go out there and fly for 20 minutes fly for an hour and if they want um and do rides and things like that that's fantastic there there's nothing wrong with that and clubs most certainly should support that and um but by the same token if you encourage people and and people do pursue their badges and and things like that. And if they go and get a silver badge, you're very you're much much more likely to retain them. And then you know, and if the clubs though go and then support uh, local events, like for instance, uh, the 126 championship is coming around in uh, in july if all goes well if not and if not this year then some other year right and i look at all these clubs that have 126s and i and i just think to myself why don't they go and support a bring a 126 down to the 126 championships right like i mean my club that's what my club did with me <laughs> you know i went out there and got to fly club glider and i had the, the fortune of winning the contest right but you don't have to do that you know you can just go out there and Get like two or three members and go down to a 126 championships, take a club glider, bring it out to a a local regional, you know, and the goal is to get people involved in the sport. And if you do that, then in a narrow sense, the the sport is actually getting better, right? I mean, in my club, things are getting better, you know, in my area for the most part, things are getting better. I mean, I I was just working on setting up a a, a regional for, uh, like a little, like a little guys meet in a regional over two weekends, uh, over the summertime. And again, we'll see how this all goes, but I already got 18 people signed up and, and I think it's going to be pretty easy to get 30. So, you know, uh, signed up to that, come to that contest. Uh, and, you know, and I mean, again, it's a low-key event, and it's got educational stuff, social events, and a lot of people that really haven't been to a competition before, uh, and they're enthusiastic about getting involved in it. So I don't think that you know, like, like another way to rephrase your question, which is, you know, where is the sport heading? Well, yeah, no, you're, you're you know, the the trend is not very good for in a, in a general sense. I agree with that, but in order to turn it around in given areas, and in, to turn it around as a whole, is actually not all that hard. It just takes. A number of people that are enthusiastic and getting people up through the program. Uh, And and if you and if you do that, then, in fact, you think about it now. I mean, you think about where the sport was in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I mean, the the resources, the the gliders, the technology, the information that's out there is unbelievable. I mean, you know, the you're you know that for for people that want to take the resources and run with them it is easier now than it's ever been <laughs> so
1: oh absolutely yeah so so many tools
0: yeah you know and and so ultimately i you know the i think you know the the question is where is the sport going is less interesting than to say where the sport can go with the the right people and the right enthusiasm and um, and, you know, and if you look at people like Tony Condon in, in Kansas, you know, who they've now, they're developing a national site, you know, that with, they basically taken a glider port that, you know, was just, you know, like a, a big field, a big air you know, became big old air force base. And, uh, and now they're turning into a, a nationally acclaimed site, you know, where they're going to be running nationals well into the future. And he's going to be around for a long time doing this sort of thing. And so. Ultimately, what I would say is is that you know is the sport dying? I think it's a bunch of bull. You know, I think that it's. uh, I think that you know that anyone who wants to go out there and do things with it and promote the sport and see other people succeed, that it's all out there and it's not all that hard to do. It's just a matter of uh, people going out there and doing it. And as far as clubs that are not doing very well, I mean, there's a very clear sort of set of things that are, that work, you know, and you look at the clubs that are doing well, they're doing those things. They're promoting the sport and they're getting people through the program. And if you do those things, you will do better, you know, and I'd very much like to see that happen. You know, I'm certainly doing that in my club and I encourage other clubs to do the same such that we can promote the sport.
1: And you, you know, being the young guy that you are, you guys are bringing in the young people, and that's like so important. So thank you for doing that.
0: Well, you know, I I hope so. You know, I uh, I very much like to see young folks flying, and you know, we have we actually have a much more uh, cohesive junior community now. I mean, JP has been pretty instrumental in that, and we had a we had a very successful junior camp and contest in 2017, and a number of since then, and uh, um, you know, and we and we're seeing you know, all the, actually the along those lines one of the things that's changed now which is really really cool is that for a while a lot of the young guys they did not have any ability they did they were only surrounded amongst the old people and and that's for for a lot of young folks that's not not all that you know exciting or you know that's not something that they particularly look forward to so but the the nature of the world is such that well you know a lot of clubs have at least one or two of these young folks right and the uh, the tools available now you know between instagram and facebook and all this the social media is that all the young folks the one or two young folks in each club actually get to know each other you know between with guys in california and texas and now myra and all this sort of thing and so you know that at this point the the young folks actually you know we we have a very nice virtual junior you know soaring community now that we didn't have before so there's a lot of things going to the better now
1: no oh, i would agree absolutely So, you know, I always usually ask near the end of of the podcast, you know, how could you be a better and safer pilot? And, you know, sometimes it's experiences that you yourself have experienced or maybe even some stories you've been told by some of the other guys that – might have, you know, a lot of experience, a lot of years of flying. But what would your answer be to that question?
0: To answer your question, right, so how can you be a, become a better and safer pilot? Um, I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> into that direction. I mean, I have a whole blog that you can go out there and, uh, um, you know, that you can read all sorts of different ideas. I mean, I like to, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, in terms of psychology, because that's what I do. I'm a PhD student. I'm a you know those studying decision making cognitive neuroscience but um kind of on you know some simple thoughts i would say the biggest thing that you can do for to improve to be safer is to go out there and continuously work on improving your skills and it's a continuous process it does not you don't necessarily have to aspire to doing big, wonderful things, you know, and there's certain people that like to do that sort of stuff and, you know, and certain people like to achieve mastery in certain things and it's natural that they go out there and they, you know, derive satisfaction out of pursuing, you know, loftier and loftier goals. You don't have to do that. In fact, I mean, if, 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 um, you enjoy going out there and flying and, and simply being up there and, and being, um, up in the sky and relaxing and, there, there's no expectation there, and uh, you know all of us derive different satisfaction out of the sport. But I would say that no matter who you are and what you do, that if you go out and you can always work on getting a little bit better, that I think it's fun to do. Uh, but also the process of doing that keeps you on, you know, on the trajectory where you are maintaining and honing your past skills you don't atrophy you don't stagnate i see some people that basically they go out there and they take their private pilot test right and that's as good as they'll ever be and then they actually forget a lot of the stuff that they they were doing at the time and their and their skills actually re, re, uh, get worse and that's disconcerting i mean you know the that's then they're then they're really marginal um but if you continuously work on little things and you know i mean you can continuously work on improving your landings a little bit you know you can continuously get a little bit better on toe you can conti- continuously work on improving your thermaling a little bit and you know and if you do that you'll that, that and having that attitude it keeps everything else where it needs to be and then you know and then beyond that that uh, you know and if you pursue new things if you try to expand your horizons then that takes that to another level and finally for folks that already do that you know, there are, um, you know, the things to to think about in terms of safety and thing is, you know, maintaining your margins and being honest with yourself. A lot of the, you know, once you get outside of errors associated with basic airmanship, you know, and basic judgment that just go back to basic training, that a lot of the ways that the more experienced pilots get hurt or get killed is you know is when they have they make some significant errors in decision making which you know that if you've been around this sport long enough you'll you'll know you'll have a couple examples that come to mind where you, where you were guilty of i certainly have numerous ones i can i can cite on my own part and and the thing there is to really realize You know, the sport is really unforgiving and, you know, that you really have to work on having a kind of a really good sense as to what, you know, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it at at various times and, you know, and respecting that, you know, because the moment that you start overstepping those bounds, the, you know, you go one step further and your risk level goes up a little bit, but you go one, two, three or four steps further and your risk level goes up exponentially. And the nature of the sport is the way it ends up working out is that you end up, you know, you're, you're, it's, everything works until it doesn't. There's just very little middle ground and psychologically speaking, that is really, really, really difficult for us to manage. Like, you know, one of the the examples I really like to cite or to like to kind of encourage people to visualize is you can watch someone coming into land, right? And you watch the, you know, and you watch them on base leg and they're a little low, they're a little slow, and then they go and, you know, they have a little bit of spoilers out, and they, they start turning from base to final at 150 feet, and they skid through the turn a little bit, a little bit slow, and then they level out and they land. You know, and, they, and you get over to them, and they got to get out of the glider. And the thing is, is when they did that in relation to someone else who made a very nice, crisp, you know, pattern, where it's made nice turns, and they turned final, you know, base to final at 250 feet, and, you know, nice and controlled, perfectly coordinated, the risk level of the first pilot was, I don't know, probably... You know, 100 million times greater than the guy that just did the, you know, the nicely controlled pattern, and the risk, you know, the likelihood of the guy that, you know, that ended up doing that that risky pattern of stalling out and spinning. Well, you know, maybe it was one in a hundred, maybe it was one in a thousand, maybe it was one in ten thousand. But the proportion differences are astronomical between the two of them. But yet. The pilot that went and did the low pattern and the low energy pattern, you know, the instructor starts telling them, well, you know, why'd you do that? And you were, you know, you got yourself into serious trouble, but oftentimes they 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 don't realize how close to the edge they were, you know, and you go off and you thermal, right? And you're, I'd say, at, I don't know, a thousand feet or whatever your lowest margin is, you know, for some people, maybe it's 500 feet. And you're going your thermal and you feel okay. you feel in control, but you know you realize that you go and you tap that inside rudder a half an inch, and the glider's going to depart on you, and you're you're in deep trouble. And so a lot of the the risk at a higher level for folks is understanding just how, unforgiving the sport is and 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 working out your margins you know and you know there's a lot of discussion as to what that is and what they ought to be and you know you can talk it over with people that your instructors or you can think you know can mull it over yourself and you know that's a personal choice to an extent but whatever that is you know it's to it's to really respect that and the moment you start overstepping those bounds you're entering into very harsh territory Um, and so well, you know, the, the kind of the big thought from a dis, from a safety perspective is, you know, is to keep your eyes wide open and think through your margins and stick to them.
1: Thank you, Daniel. That's some great advice. And and thanks for joining me on the podcast. I know you didn't really have much notice, but wow, you've given me uh, lots of information and and other listeners, I'm sure are going to enjoy all the information and the great idea for doing some condor while we're all sitting around and continue to learn and continue to keep our skills up so we're ready when we all get back out there to the glider port.
0: Well, fantastic. And anytime, you know. And we'll hopefully uh, over the next couple months, you know, we'll get, get through these troubling times and, and have have some fun things to do to keep our minds off of the world events. So, and uh, happy to help. Thanks again,
1: Daniel. And thank you for listening to another episode here on Soaring the Sky. And recently I did have a chance to hop online myself and fly with a couple friends. It is a lot of fun. So go have fun with that. If you're looking to stay in touch with us on social media, Michelle has all of that info for you. Michelle?
0: Hey Chuck, how are you?
1: Hey, good to have you. You know, we're used to having your voice at the end, but today I thought I would give you a shout and talk to you a bit. What's going on? You know, what are you doing as far as the social distancing that we've been talking about on this episode? What, what have you been doing to keep busy? Well, we have been taking care of some projects around the house. Um... We are living down south, so we have been mowing and getting our flower beds ready and planting some seeds for the garden and cleaning out the basement, lots of lots of fun stuff. And uh, we're just hanging out with our kids who are teenagers and, uh, and our German Shepherds. Well, it is a great time to do all that. It's not a great time for the world, but if we do have extra time, that's nice to spend extra time with family, and like you said, get all those projects done. But I wanted to touch base with you and say hi and let you say hello to the listeners.
0: Well, great. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. And go ahead and let us know how they can get a hold of us on social media.
0: On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's the same, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.